Well, the focus of this passage, if you didn't pick up on it, is the number 12, not the number, but the, who the 12 are, the disciples of Jesus. It invited them to share in his vocation and partner with him in ministry. He sent them out in pairs to preach, to heal, and to cast out demons. They've now returned, and they're ready to tell Jesus all about it. But he realizes they've got to be tired and in need of some rest and restoration. So he says, come with me to a remote place where that can happen. At their commissioning, when Jesus sent them out, he told them not to take any provisions with them. Specifically, he said, no bread, no purse, no extra clothes. In other words, they were completely vulnerable and dependent upon receiving such things from the people they went out to uh, meet with and to serve. In this way, um, it was to be a venture of total reliance on God. They had to learn what Jesus practiced, which was to put his complete trust, their complete trust in God, like Jesus did. Now they're in the boat, and as they reach the other side, a crowd is already there waiting. Now, I, when I read the Gospels, I always like to put myself in the story. Generally, it's one of the disciples, not Jesus. There are times, <laughs> who, who laughs so hard? Uh, <laughs> okay, um, so I try to imagine myself as one of the disciples getting out of the boat, and you see this crowd... And Jesus has just told you, let's go to a lonely place for rest. And you're thinking, that sounds great. And you see this crowd and you just want to go, oh, come on, people. Go away. Go home. If you need healing, come back. It can wait a couple of days. This is our FaceTime with Jesus. But instead, the text says, Jesus welcomed them. And again, I would go, oh, he did it again. You know, when, when will this end? Um, so he welcomed them. And Jesus talked to them about the kingdom yet again, filled their lives with hope and encouragement. And he healed those who needed it. And as the day wore on, you'll notice it's the 12 that come to Jesus, not a, not a single disciple, but the 12 Again, the number of all of them. They come to him, and I think they're not really concerned about the crowd. I think they want, because listen to the words they use. Tell them to go away. Send them away so that they can get food and lodging. You know, you don't want to ever reveal your real motivation. You always want to have something positive to add to whatever it is you're feeling. For their sake, Jesus, do it. And then what does Jesus say? You give them something to eat. And I want to go, come on, you know, you've got to be kidding. Really? Even if we could go find a store that sold bread, how could we afford it? And then try to use your imagination. How would we get it back? We'd need wheelbarrows.
Jesus gives them another version of what they had already been doing, and they're not getting it. They had relied on God before. He's saying, can you do it again? Can you do it this time? They had been given authority to drive out demons and to heal people. Now they're given an opportunity to meet the needs of a large crowd by feeding them. But the task to them seemed impossible. Oh, sure, two loaves, I mean, five loaves of bread and two fish they had at their disposal, but that's woefully insufficient to feed thousands. But what for them was insufficient to Jesus was all sufficient. It's all he needed. And after he broke the bread and fish, he gave them to his disciples. Notice he doesn't give it to the people. He gives it to the disciples. So yet again, they can feed the people. Now, I did a quick math. If you're talking 5,000, we don't know. You know, it says 5,000 men. We don't know if it's 5,000 men plus women and children or 5,000 men sort of encompasses the women and children. But Nevertheless, the number is 5,000, and so I divvied it up. That's 460 people each disciple, if they did it equally. And trust me, they probably were looking at each other like, okay, are you feeding as many as I am? And then the text tells us the people ate until they were satisfied. And then, and then what? The disciples picked up the leftovers in how many baskets? Twelve. Is there an object lesson here or what? I mean, this is like elementary school. You keep repeating the number. Hey, I, I heard the number twelve again. While the disciples had done many of the same things Jesus did, this story emphasizes their inability to do anything with the resources at their disposal. And I wonder how many times I look at what I have or what I possess or what I'm capable of and think, uh, way too limited, can't do anything, can't address this, beyond reach, beyond my imagination. And, and I wonder, what kind of faith is that? What kind of dependence on God is that? But Jesus has the ability and power to meet the needs of such a seemingly impossible situation. Now, the people who listened to Jesus and the people who read Luke's gospel, they all would have made a connection to two stories found in the Hebrew scriptures that this incident would have reminded them of. The first being Moses as he led the people in their exodus from Egypt and then into the desert, into the wilderness when they wandered. And bereft of food, they grew hungry and complained and cried out to God. And what did God do? He fed them with bread from heaven called manna. And even then they wanted to scoop it up and save it for another day and it spoiled Because the lesson is God will provide. Don't don't think you manage this situation. God will do it. And in the same manner, Jesus 
had taken the loaves of bread and he looked up to heaven. It, Luke makes it very clear. He looked up to heaven so that you make that connection. The bread then is, is provided in abundance. Jesus is seen as the new Moses who rescues God's people from sin and, and death. A new exodus. The second story dates back to the time of Elijah and Elijah. So you, the way the scriptures read and those stories are told, you sort of see them one in the same. In fact, we even hear that, remember, Elijah is taken up into heaven, but before he goes, he places the mantle on Elisha, as if you have become me, carry on my mission and my, and my work here. So you, you liken the two. So there was a time when uh, a group of prophets had come to see Elisha, and he tells his servant to feed them. And the servant goes, what? Because he has 12 lo I mean, 20 loaves of bread, but there's, four, there's 100 prophets. How am I supposed to do that? Sound familiar? And in this instance, you're to see Jesus as perhaps the new Elijah. Remember, he's the, the, the expectation was Elijah would return and, and proclaim the coming of the Messiah. And perhaps Jesus then is, is this one who is going to be God's provision for the world. Well, I'd like to make a third comparison. Tonight's the Academy Awards, and 30 years ago, this film won Best Picture, won an Oscar for Best Foreign Film, Babette's Feast. In a remote fishing village on the coast of Denmark lived a fervent Protestant pastor and his two lovely and devout daughters. Mindful of their responsibilities with their father and his mission of reform, each of them had turned down interested suitors. And now they have become spinsters. And after their father's death, they carry on the work of his mission with saintly devotion. And then Babette arrives at their doorstep. She's a refugee seeking sanctuary from the revolutionary violence of Paris. And she has a secret. Though nearly penniless, the sisters agree to take her in as their unpaid housekeeper. As Babette cooks, cleans, washes, and sews, she brings order and efficiency to the sisters' lives. And even you begin to see some of her influence on the flock uh, that they care for, which by now has become fractured by old grievances and jealousies. It's a curmudgeon group. And after 14 years of scrimping on every domestic expense, Babette suddenly receives a windfall, a lottery win that provides her with the means to now live independently. But that's not what she chooses with the money. She uses it and splurges on a meal she prepares for the sisters and the church members and some visitors. She is a professional chef. And she makes an exquisite French meal for them. 
Now, what you have to know about this community is they deny pleasure as a form of spiritual exercise. They, they think that's how you are spiritual, is to refrain from such pleasures. And they refuse to enjoy themselves at this meal. And you just watch them start to take bites of these delicacies that have been elaborately prepared. If you're hungry, don't watch this movie. In fact, don't listen to me, because it's probably... No, you do listen to the Word of God. Babette's intention is she wants to convey her gratitude to the people that took her in when she was desperately in need. And the kindness that she was shown by the sisters and the congregation. And slowly we watch as her gift begins to warm them toward an appreciation of how good this food is. And how good creation is. And they begin to see that the people around the table are good. And it transforms how they see things because of what they've taken in. Like Jesus feeding the 5,000 and serving them um, a meal by the disciples. He is giving them a lesson in God's provision that is always received with faith. The disciples wanted to send the people away, and Jesus found a way for them to stay. And it makes me wonder, how often do I thwart the invitation of Jesus for people to come, for people to gather and receive what is good, what God has for them? Because I somehow think, oh, well, in order to do that, you need to do this first, or you need to say it right, or you need to repent first. You need to, you, you need to get right with God first, and then you can receive this meal. In another gospel version of this story, after the disciples have asked Jesus to send them away, he asked them, well, what do you have? What, what's at your disposal? And this reminds us that this is not a story of magic. Jesus doesn't make something out of nothing here. He takes what, what is given him, what is offered, and he's able to do more than we think possible. He takes what's tangible and he multiplies it such that there's more at the end than there was at the beginning. Amazing. So just like the disciples who had been sent out to the unknown world quite vulnerable without any resources other than that they have the gospel and they're to depend on God's provision for them. So we're reminded to trust God completely from the beginning to the end. Well, we certainly know what it's like to live in a world of hunger pain, suffering, and want. Even those of us who live in the West who have more goods than the rest of the world still speak in terms of needs and longing. It may not be for bread, but it's certainly for intimacy, for community, for wholeness, for purpose and fulfillment. 
we need to be reminded that Jesus' coming was the start of a new world, of God's rule and the blessing of God's rule breaking into our world and bringing what is needed. His words and actions are a sign of God doing this new, wonderful thing in our midst. And his invitation to the table goes out to a world just like the one we live in. So that the people who are in Yemen, on the verge of, of famine and starvation, for political reasons, oh my goodness, how horrible is this? That a nation in our world today is going without food because of a blockade and because we align ourselves with certain governments and not with others and think this is a religious or political matter. This is a humanity crisis. And Jesus invites them to the table. In places where people live in the conflict of war and innocent people are being bombarded with, with bombs of their own country in Syria, in Afghanistan, and Sudan, or people who struggle with injustice due to their race or, or, their, or their gender. Such inequalities marginalize them. Jesus invites them to come. Communities fractured by hate and hostility, families that are broken due to fear and violence, I mean fear and anger, Jesus says, come to the poor, to the hungry, to the broken. All of us who recognize our need for God and are willing to respond to Jesus' invitation can receive the blessing of God's rule and be fed and made whole and satisfied. The words that Jesus uses in this passage will be mirrored when he gathers at the table with his disciples in the upper room. Hear the words he says. Luke tells us he took bread and having given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples. That same word, I mean, that's exactly the same words that's used here in this passage when he feeds so many. This meal serves as a sign of God's provision for us. And the feast, it's a foretaste of the feast that awaits us all. You'll recall in the opening of this chapter that Luke refers to Herod and Herod's interest in Jesus and his identity. And it's as if this chapter of Luke is like a hinge. So imagine this is the book of Luke and the first half is the ministry of Jesus in Galilee, which draws to a close in chapter 9. It's the summation and this meal is part of that summation. It's this a beautiful description of what does the presence of God's kingdom look like? What does it mean for people? But then the, the mention of Herod and then 
and his, and his interest in Jesus. It's not necessarily because of God. It's a different interest altogether. Because what does he say? John, I beheaded. Who's this? He's, he sees him as a threat. And the second half of the book of Luke comes when Jesus, at the end of this chapter, Luke tells us Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. He knows his destiny and his purpose. And so the first half is his ministry in Galilee. The second half is his ministry in Judea. And that ministry is one of self-sacrifice, of giving his life for you and for me. Like the sacrificial meal Babette prepared for her guests, this meal represents Jesus' sacrifice of his life for us. He is God's anointed one, and for that, he must die. And to follow him means we must die as well. We die to self. We die to our own ambitions and our own uh, intentions and our own self-orientation. And we find ourselves made alive to God and all that is good. And we begin to see the good that God has made of this world and the good of people in it. We are made alive to God and all is good and then we're given a life of service to others just as Jesus lived. And you might say, oh, come on. Can't you just bless my life so I can live it how I want? So just as Jesus took the bread and gave thanks and gave it to his disciples, later in the meal, he took a cup like this and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. When you drink this, when you taste this, remember me. We take Jesus' life into our own and we live anew. We understand that God's kingdom has come and we're eager to share that good news with others. Friends, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Receive them as nourishment and as refreshment to your soul. We'll sing to prepare our hearts to receive communion and then we'll give more instructions.